Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping stresses striving for full revitalization of Northeast China. The visiting Venezuelan president says the development experience of China's tech hub city Shenzhen is constructive for his country. And a devastating earthquake hits Morocco, killing more than 2,000 people. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping has emphasized the critical importance of the northeastern province of Heilongjiang in the nation's comprehensive development strategy. During his recent inspection tour to the province last week, President Xi underscored the primary task of advancing high-quality development in the region. He urged Heilongjiang to bolster its advanced manufacturing sector and modernize its traditional industries. He also called for an enhanced for the service sector and a comprehensive improvement in the province's economic structure. So to delve deeper into the topic of revitalizing northeastern China, joining us on the line is Professor Chu Qiang, Assistant Director of International Monetary Institute at Renmin University of China. Thanks for joining us, Professor Chu. You're welcome. Uh, it has been five years since President Xi Jinping personally chaired a high-level symposium on the revitalization of Northeast China. What do you believe are the reasons behind President Xi's repeated emphasis on the revitalization of this region? Well, you have to understand that uh, in China, uh, Northeastern China used to be a very important contributor to the national economy, not only since the founding of the uh, new China in the 1949, but also even before that, uh, the uh, old northeastern China has already become a very important, uh, you know, industrial base and business hub in all over China. Well, here I will give you a, a code knowledge. Can you guess which city used to be the most important financial center and transportation hub in the all eastern Asia? I can tell the answer. It's not Shanghai. It's not even Tokyo, mm-hmm. but it's Harbin. Well, that place have all the elements to be the business hub. Uh, in this region, for example, they have very good harbor. They have been adjacent by many other countries, and they have great farmland, and they have a very, very enriched uh, the reserve of the uh, mining resources. So anything you need it, it's there in the northeastern China. So Heilongjiang province especially uh, is more likely to be so. So with such a great condition, why in the past 20 years, uh, northeastern China uh, development speed has been uh, a little bit falling behind. I think there must be some reason need to be re- resolved. I think President Xi Jinping has already seen that, see the potential of this whole region, and now he finds out that this is the important moment to revitalize this whole region with strategic thinking and a package of policies. Then given the region's historical position, what policies and support have the national government provided to the region in recent years, and what achievements have been realized in the region as a result? Well, I think, first of all, what we need is a top design, an overarching policy package. You see, in China, every, th- every time when you have a group of metropolis to develop together to form a business belt or business circle, you need an overall design. For example, everybody knows the story of Shenzhen and Guangzhou, right? Mm-hmm. So now we have the Chinese Bay Area centered with Guangzhou and Shenzhen. Now this place is, has become a manufacturing center and a business hub, not only for China, but also in the whole Asia and whole rest of the world. And then you will know the story of the Shanghai Pudong. And centered with Shanghai, you will see the great city uh, business uh, centers like uh, Nanjing, like Suzhou, like Hangzhou, and Ningbo, and etc. Now this is the most uh, uh, richest places in China as well. We call it Yance River Delta. And also in Beijing and the Tianjin and the Tangshan Delta, we have the North China Delta. But now, uh, with the Northeastern China, we do not have this kind of a similar top design, the whole package, to bring together Harbin, Shenyang, and Changchun together. Even though they already have very good industrial base, 
very talented people, very good transportation, but they are not going out with uh, this kind of a top design. And secondly, I think, is that we need to revitalize our thinking. Uh, before, uh, everybody will think, well, northeastern China probably should be positioned as old industrial base, heavy industry, mining, that can be the old label for them. But now this label should be removed and replaced with the new one, high-tech, uh, medicine industry, as a green energy. For example, right now, the Harbin Electronic, those companies are uh, one of the top builders of the robo-arms, you know, uh, very important for the automatic production. And also, you would know, FAW Group is very important, the car builder. They used to build conventional cars, but now with the hot uh, popular uh, popularity coming out with the EV of China, they become one of the top builders of the chassis and frameworks for the EVs, and also for the aviation industry, for the renewable energy industry. Northeastern China right now has already been uh, one of the pioneers in this industry. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Shanghai and Shenzhen as other provinces and cities in China advanced toward high-quality development. Uh, could you please elaborate more on how can Northeast China adapt its industrial structure to achieve uh, revitalization and remain competitive? Well, I think, first of all, I think from the business circle, business cycle, I think already this is the time for the Northeastern China. Number one, uh, global warming can be a bad news for everyone, for sure. But also, if you take a micro level, you will find out the frozen land and uh, sometimes the frozen harbor in the northeastern China right now has already been resolved. And the very enriched rainfall has coming in there. Similar happened in Xinjiang region in China. So those regions become more and more arable and more and more transportable. So this is a good condition, one. And secondly, we're welcoming a new wave of in, uh, industry revolution. Just as I mentioned, mm. green energy, electronic uh, vehicles, uh, and also uh, the high-tech uh, medicines, gene technology, those are uh, the new industries can be right now relocated uh, in this heartland of the northeastern China. And thirdly, as I mentioned, more importantly, Central government China, President Xi Jinping has already paid a great attention to the potential of this region. So now we can really wait very soon for the top design of the policy to come out. Maybe in the future, we will have another metropolis group linking the three capital cities of the three provinces in northeastern China mm-hmm. to form another uh, gr- group of the city circle to come out. So this is condition three. And of course, we've been seeing... Uh, many uh, uh, companies, especially the uh, small and the medium-sized enterprises, uh, tax-savvy enterprises especially, have been relocated to northeastern China again because of the very affordable prices and housing, very uh, good conditions for taxation and etc. So this can be a new starting point for the high-quality development in this region to achieve Chinese-style modernization. And if you want me to say more about this, I can give a whole lecture for a whole day, but mm-hmm. uh, just don't mind this. So with top design, with this great condition happened with the business cycle, uh, with this new climate condition, I think this area uh, and uh, matching with this great position geographically, I think it's doomed to have a great uh, progress in the development. Professor, given the bright future you just printed, um, President Xi Jinping emphasized the importance of both increased support and uh, self-motivation in revitalizing Northeast China. Can you elaborate on the strategies that could effectively combine external support with a local initiative to achieve this goal to have a bright future for the region? Well, first of all, you will see that many Eastern and coastal provinces has already been sending uh, their supportive team to go to the northeastern China. As far as I know, many high-tech companies are right now uh, are given very favorable conditions if they want to set up a branch companies in northeastern China, in Heilongjiang, in Jilin, in Liaoning, and also taxation. Taxation policy is really, really important incentive. Right now, the central government has already been endorsing the local provinces to give favorable taxation uh, treatment to the enterprises if they want to come there, as well as the land prices. The central government are giving them more of the liberty to manage their own land resources for commercial development, for 
farming development or for industrial uh, uses. And as well, we've been seeing more of the uh, uh, arrangement has been made in the cross-border trade and the cross-border transportation. So as far as we know, that more and more Chinese uh, agriculture enterprises are authorized to work with Russia to use their fertile land to uh, to produce uh, the grain and the food and then shipped into China and shipped to adjacent countries, including Korea and Japan, for more of the uh, uh, for more of the income, and then uh, we've been seeing the transportation plans has further been made towards the deep land in this region, not only the three provinces in northeast, but also the northeastern part of the Inner Mongolia will be included. So this spillover effect will also emanate to not only uh, the three provinces, including Inner Mongolia, but also to the uh, Mongolia country, and then Russia, Korea Peninsula. Japan, and even further to other regions. So I think all those conditions has already been made, uh, and all those efforts has already seen results. Mm-hmm. Speaking of that, so one of the key focuses is on modernizing infrastructure and promoting connectivity. How do you envision the region's role in both domestic and international circulation, especially in the context of the Belt and Road Initiative? Yes, I'm glad you mentioned about transportation. Well, I'm a frequent traveler to northeastern China before because everybody knows I've been working with poverty alleviation program mm-hmm. in the nation for more than 10 years. So that used to be a poor region for sure. And uh, uh, 10 years ago, even wanted me to travel there. It's really, really hard because not so many of the high-speed rail across the whole region, especially if you want to travel to the further north or the inner land of the whole region, it's kind of a very cruel traveling. You have to, uh, you know, get along with a low-speed train, uh, very low-quality uh, rural buses. And now if you travel around, you will find out high-speed rail and the whole network has already been prevailed in the whole region, linking uh, the whole provinces, including uh, the uh, three provinces plus one, the northeastern in, in Mongolia. And also, we see many arrangements has already been made between China and adjacent countries. For example, uh, the harbor of Vladivostok in Russia has right now been endorsing China to use it for the further uh, export and the shipment. And a similar arrangement has been made with many other uh, inland ports and other countries. So this really makes everything convenient. And also, as I just mentioned, climate change can be a problem. But uh, in a micro level, it can be good for the further north and a frozen land. So in the future, we're predicting that maybe the north polar ice, the polar gap, will be, uh, will be melting down a little bit, which means the further north passage, no matter on the land and also on the sea, will be opened up. And at that moment, you will find out northeastern China and those uh, ports and all those railways will serve more importantly more than before. And in the future, this new passage, this new region, uh, after the uh, climate uh, weather goes up, probably will become a hot land for the business, for the transportation. Mm-hmm. Professor, we know a region is hard to develop without talents. President Xi Jinping talked about improving the overall quality of the population and uh, cultivating talent hub in the region. What policies and initiatives could be implemented to attract or retain talent in the region? Well, number one, I think the self-adjustment has already been happening uh, because in the summer, it's very, very cool, the weather in those regions. And also, as I mentioned, in the winter, the climate uh, weather has already been going up. So more and more, this place become suitable for people to stay with. So women witness that more and more young people choose to immigrate to the northeastern China to move there and live there. And also another condition is that uh, the local house prices is very, very affordable. And the, the a commodity and a grocery price is also very, very affordable. So with the same amount of uh, uh, monthly income, you will have a much higher quality of life. That's the reason why I believe many young people, why they move there. And secondly, the national government has really issued a lot of the policies to encourage young people to go there. For example, even though in northeastern China, 
have a rather lower density of population, but their density for higher education, very top education in the, of the university, hasn't located there. For example, in Harbin alone, they have several top universities uh, of science and technology in China. Many young people from all over China choose to move there and stay there. And also the government are providing many of the incentives for young people if they want to go there, stay there, get married and located in there. For myself, several of my co-workers uh, have already moved there from Beijing because they can find a better position. Mm-hmm. They can have, find a higher uh, salary or with the same salary with a better quality of life. They moved there. So I think that really the government will give them um, a promoting uh, promotion opportunity or income increasing opportunity if they want to do uh, some you know, job in there. So I think more and more you're going to see serious of the policy to come out after President Xi Jinping's visit to there, because in China, usually we will have the top design, and then we'll filter down with more detailed policies and then implementation. And you can count on that to see more of the details come out in the next one or three years. Thanks, Professor, for insightful opinion. That's Professor Chu Chiang, Assistant Director of International Monetary Institute at Renmi University of China. You are listening to Road Today. Stay with us. Visiting Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro says his country is keen to learn from Shenzhen's development experience. He made the remarks during his seven-day trip to China, starting in Shenzhen, known as the country's Silicon Valley. Maduro has overseen the signing of a memorandum of cooperation to solidify collaborative strategies based on China's expertise. This trip is Maduro's fifth visit to China. So for more on the state visit of Venezuela president, let's bring in Dr. Tim Anderson, director of the Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank. Thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Can you elaborate on the significance of Venezuelan President Maduro's visit to China, particularly his choice of stops in China, first Shenzhen, then Shanghai, Jinan, etc.? Well, I think it's clear that the Venezuela, um, the Venezuelan government is very keen to develop closer ties with China, which already has significant investments in Venezuela in the Orinoco oil fields. Um, but Venezuela is also very keen to learn about the industrialization and technological advances in China, and particularly in, as you say, in Shenzhen, which is really the most remarkable example of cluster development and industrialization in recent decades. As you mentioned, uh, Venezuela is keen to learn from Shenzhen's development experience. Could you explain the key aspects of Shenzhen's development model that might be relevant to Venezuela's economic growth and modernization? Well, from Venezuelan point of view, you know, they've been struggling with this for some time to how to change an oil economy. And most oil economies are very dependent economies. They're lazy. They don't develop agriculture, don't develop industry. And for the last 20 years, I've been making efforts to try and move away from this type of dependent oil economy or a rent-seeking economy into um, greater value-added production. And that includes through raising levels of general education, technical education, and moving into some of the areas that Shenzhen as a, a model really of cluster development, where you have a lot of reinforcing cross-links Uh, in the economy between colleges, technical colleges and industrial development and production and and marketing and so on. All of those high-level cross-linkages are very important um, in terms of learning how to industrialize. And I think that Venezuela is looking for those sorts of opportunities and looking to always been looking to to broaden its its international networks, too, particularly in view of the the financial blockade that they've been experiencing. Dr. Anderson, the signing of a memorandum of cooperation between Venezuela and China Research Center for Special Economic Zones at Shenzhen University is mentioned. What specific goals or strategies are outlined in this agreement, and how might it benefit both nations? Well, um, from what I've seen in the reports from Telesur and CGTN, the, this is a, a memorandum of understanding which is about precisely about Um, learning from that experience of Shenzhen 
in terms of production, in terms of technology, in terms of the cross-linkages, in terms of the planning that's involved in turning a, uh, a high-knowledge economy into the technological um, achievements of China generally and Shenzhen in, in particular. So, as I said, Venezuela has made some effort, certainly in, in education, public health, and um, but it hasn't got quite the, the level of expertise, the level of experience that China has in turning the knowledge economy into the technological achievements that we see in public infrastructure and in in the computational area and, and, and other areas of industry, for example. So certainly Venezuela wants to learn from that experience. And I think in terms of China's um, ambitions, I think there's a, a great desire to integrate with Venezuela's weight as an energy producer, energy exporter, and to invest in the Orinoco Belt there. And also, of course, Venezuela is a window for China into the the Latin American um, milieu, which is really has a, a number of um, uh, regional integration um, organisations which have been spearheaded by Venezuela in particular, particularly under the former president, Hugo Chavez. Dr. Anderson, President Maduro mentioned that, I quote here, when you come to China, you come to the future, back quote. How has China's progress in science and technology contributed to its reputation, especially among developing nations today? I think when we look at some of the remarkable achievements, like the very fast train network of expansion of that in recent years, it's just astonishing, it leaves the rest of the world for dead, really. There isn't anything like it in even the advanced economies, um, let alone developing economies. There, The the, the new kilometres of, of train line every year, very fast train line, which is, of course, absolutely critical public infrastructure for a whole range of things. Um, and then uh, also in some areas, the development of renewable energy, for example, also China is a world leader in those fields. So I think there's really, in applied technology, really some of the best lessons are coming from China these days. Um, President Maduro's visit is aimed at strengthening ties and cooperation between China and Venezuela. Can you discuss the broader geopolitical implications and potential outcomes of this visit for both countries and the regions? Well, I think we, we have to regard Venezuela as an aspiring member of BRICS. Um, that it wasn't admitted in that last round of new members to BRICS, but I think it will certainly be looking to do so in the future. And that will mean, uh, with the with the admission of, of Venezuela into the BRICS group, if it happens, for example, next year, it will mean that most of the big energy exporters in the world are in the BRICS group. So in other words, the BRICS group will be really um, able to consolidate its economic weight in the world and, and also China's uh, with China's weight in that in that group. Uh, in, in a whole range of fields, in, as technological leaders, as energy exporters, for example, that's going to have a significant impact on the influence of, of the BRICS, which we already saw really in the G20 meeting when we saw that, for example, the attempts to make a, a, a US-crafted motion against Russia because of the war in Ukraine at the moment, the G20 blocked it precisely because of the, the BRICS membership there now. Now, the next important step, I think, that a lot of the world is looking forward to, and particularly those countries that are under these serious so-called economic sanctions, really unilateral measures um, against more than 20 countries, and affecting every country in the world because third parties are affected by this, this type of aggressive unilateral coercive measures in the, in the world financial system now. I think a lot, there's a lot of anxiety to see what will be the new developments uh, from China, which has had an experience in in developing a digital yuan, for example, but also from BRICS, which has been using bilateral swaps and talking about a basket of currencies, talking effectively about new financial initiatives which will help the world get back to a more stable trading system, a more stable and fair trading system without this level of targeting and aggression in the financial system that we see today. Okay, thanks, Dr. Anderson. That's Dr. Tim Anderson, Director of the Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank. This is Road Today. Stay tuned for more engaging discussions and updates on evolving stories. We'll be back. You've been listening to Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing.
More than 2,000 people are dead following an earthquake in Morocco. That number is expected to rise as search and rescue operations continue. An aftershock has complicated efforts in hard-to-reach areas. The Red Cross Society of China has announced 200,000 U.S. dollars in emergency humanitarian aid. More support is pouring in as the Moroccan government begins to accept some international help. Alex Cardia reports from Marrakesh. International help and resources being offered at the moment. Some of them are being accepted by the Moroccan government, even uh, with countries like Israel or Algeria that have had complicated diplomatic relationships with Morocco. That has been put to one side. Uh, Algeria uh, broke diplomatic relations two years ago. Well, they've opened their airspace to humanitarian convoys and are offering help as well. I'm just outside of the blood donation center for the Mohammed VI hospital, one of the main hospitals in the city. And actually, the officials here have told me that they have had to stop allowing people in because people have been donating blood without fail uh, uh, non-stop for almost two days now. But about an hour and a half away from uh, where we're standing now, uh, an hour and a half south of where we are, the Atlas Mountains, those remote areas, that is proving still very challenging. There are still some areas that haven't been accessed. Helicopters have started making their way up to those very remote areas. Uh, just to give you another picture, during the day, the heat is really still quite intense, 38 degrees. Now, if you're working in the mountains in big equipment, these rescuers really are uh, working incredibly hard to get people out. That was Alex Cadir on the aftermath of the earthquake in Morocco. So for more on this, we're joined by Dr. He Wenping, an expert on African affairs and a senior research fellow at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thanks for joining us, Dr. He. Hi, hello, thanks for having me. The earthquake resulted in a significant loss of lives and injuries, with over 2,000 people losing their lives and many more injured. What factors contributed to the high casualty in this event? Yes, that was very sorry uh, to know this event happening uh, in Morocco. Actually, I have been to Morocco several times, even this uh, Marrakech City, I'm also quite familiar. Actually, uh, this uh, reason, I think, uh, caused so much uh, this uh, high casualty. Uh, there are many. Uh, number one, because the earthquake happened in the midnight, around uh, 11 o'clock uh, in, in the local time. So people all like in the sound sleep. So they had no such enough time uh, to run out. And this number one. Number two, because all those uh, buildings are there. Uh, quite, quite old buildings because in Morocco, this uh, uh, such a high magnitude earthquake at uh, this time actually there's once happened in 100 years. Uh, you see those uh, buildings in Marrakechi around those rural area actually quite, quite old buildings. They are not that high, you know, uh, those quality can against those uh, high uh, magnitude earthquakes. So that's flattening, you know, falling down. So those people, even without wear, Anything happening, and then they are unfortunately passed away. And also, third reason, I think, uh, because those uh, earthquake happened, those uh, main center uh, is in a remote area, those uh, countryside, uh, not the city, uh, downtown in Marrakech. So in the remote rural area, it's very hard to reach uh, those places to rescue uh, the people. And also, even in the city, you know, Marrakech have been there, you know, the very narrow street. Uh, so when the building falling down, a lot of uh, rubble there, and then you even cannot drive uh, those big uh, uh, those uh, cars or those uh, rescue uh, mechanism cannot easily to get in. So that's another reason uh, caused those high casualties. As you said, mm. you've been to the country many times. Could you explain the significance of the earthquake's impact on heritage sites such as the Columbia? mosque and the UNESCO World Heritage Site in the old city of Marrakech. Oh, yes. Uh, I have been to Marrakech and Rabat, uh, so uh, also the uh, other cities in Morocco. Actually, uh, this Marrakech city is so beautiful uh, because all you see on the TV screen about the earthquake, all the cities and then is the majority of them are in that time. So it's called the City of Dread. And then that the biggest square, and also that the World uh, UNESCO uh, World Heritage Site, uh, that uh, mosque uh, has been called uh, even the roof of the Marrakech. 
Don't people, no matter where you are in that city, around that city, but as long as you can see that uh, very high those mosques, uh, that uh, building, and then you won't get lost. So that's why people call that is the roof of the Marrakesh. But now I also heard uh, like this mosque itself uh, now also suffers from earthquakes and some cracks uh, show up around those buildings, uh, supporting those buildings, so it's quite dangerous. I think uh, uh, needs to be maintained as soon as possible. Uh, otherwise, uh, this uh, uh, UNESCO World Heritage Site uh, maybe will be damaged, and then that will be a big loss, uh, not only for uh, people in Morocco, Morocco people also a big loss uh, for people in the world. Doctor Hu, in the wake of this devastating earthquake, rescue efforts are racing against time to find survivors. Can you provide insights into the challenges and the complexity faced by the rescue teams, especially in reaching remote villages and assessing the scale of destruction? Well, as I just said at the very beginning, because those remote areas, those villages, and, uh, you know, those uh, they are scattered, uh, you know, all over uh, this uh, city and that area of Marrakesh. So uh, because the road has been destroyed and also uh, a lot of rubbles around the road, so now it's not that uh, easy uh, to get to them uh, from... Uh, uh, you know, even the Morocco, the Royal Army has been mobilized, uh, but they are now short of uh, those uh, machines and uh, to get clean, uh, clean the road in uh, that uh, quickest way. Uh, this is uh, number one. And number two, even in the city, uh, for anyone, if you have been to Marrakesh, you will see very narrow streets. Actually, this is one of the tourist attractions uh, for the people outside of Marrakesh, even outside of Morocco, <clears throat> when they visited the city, they enjoy uh, this kind of a very narrow uh, street. And then when you're passing through by walking, and besides uh, this narrow street, there are some uh, tourist uh, souvenir, uh, those local uh, souvenir things have been sold around the street. So it's quite uh, uh, enjoyable. But now when the disaster happening, uh, this uh, enjoyable, this narrow street, Oh, I, I, I watch the TV, uh, those, uh, uh, you know, those videos. I see all those narrow streets now almost uh, impossible to go through. Uh, not to mention for those machines, because for rescue people, you need uh, some machines, uh, mechanical things. But now all the rescue I heard uh, in Morocco, in Marrakesh uh, area, all by hand, uh, only by hand. So it's very slow. And you, you, if you're short of machine, you cannot uh, make a clear detection to know uh, any lives, uh, you know, remain under those rubbles, remain under those ruins. So you cannot just uh, listening uh, from your human ear uh, and also by human hand. Uh, that's uh, not uh, effect, effective and efficient. Morocco has accepted aid offers from several foreign nations, including China. How does international cooperation play a crucial role in disaster response, especially in this country? Oh, yes. Uh, we have, uh, uh, you know, uh, heard a lot of uh, this, uh, assistance and also condolence to the people who lost their life in Morocco. Yeah, many, many from the United Nations. Uh, Secretary General uh, Antonio Guterres himself also sent his... Uh, condolence and also offer the United Nations will make a quick action to offer help. And also many, especially those Middle East countries like a neighbor country, Algeria, yeah, already offer a quick, uh, very first-hand uh, rescue uh, to help. And uh, uh, like uh, UAE, uh, like uh, Saudi Arabia, those Middle East countries, of course, including the United States and also China, uh, China also quickly, uh, we announced the 200,000 uh, 200, U.S. dollars uh, from our the Red Cross Society of China. So this is an emergency humanitarian aid. So many help hands now reached to Morocco uh, because this is a totally disaster and it just happens uh, even in 100 years' time. Uh, we have uh, heard now uh, quite a lot of earthquakes, by the way, now uh, just uh, you know, in Turkey, 
Uh, that's also a disaster also happened in the midnight. And then now this time in Morocco. Uh, actually, years ago also happened in Virginia. Uh, even in Morocco themselves, uh, in the year 2004, also had an earthquake happening, uh, also quite big. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Dr. He, for your insights. That's Dr. He Wenping, expert on African affairs and a senior research fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Our thoughts and prayers are with the people of Morocco during this challenging time. We hope the international assistance provided will help aid the recovery as soon as possible. This is Road Today. We'll be back. China's consumer price index edged up 0.1% yearly in August. The turnaround is in line with market expectations. Experts say this reversal of negative growth seen in the previous month underscores the nation's ongoing recovery in the consumer market amid a mix of economic stimulus measures. What are the signals behind the indicators? To find out more, Zhao Yang spoke with Dr. Zhou Mi, a senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So China's CPI edged up 0.1% year-on-year in August. It reversed the negative growth. So Dr. Zhou, how do you explain it? And what does the latest figure mean for the economy as a whole? Yes, when we're looking at the data of uh, July, we say it's a uh, decreased. So when we're looking at the data from August, it has been uh, reversed to increase. I think that is uh, definitely one of the questions we have worried maybe in the last month. But I don't think it's a kind of a problem because China's economy is recovering and the economies are putting more demand for different kind of materials and people are having stronger abilities to buy more things. That is definitely good for the CPI to increase. But I, I don't think that's a very high inflation is good thing. So the moderate uh, uh, rebound of the CPI is a kind of a signal we are looking at the recovery of the economy. Mm. So does this figure mean that the consumer market maintain a recovery momentum or what do you expect for the rest of the year, especially with the latest slew of economic stimulus measures? Yeah, as the CPI indicates, it's a, a mainly are something to do with the consumers' behaviors and uh, uh, expectations. We know that consumers in China are trying to have better, uh, you know, demand for different things, especially for these months, because you know the September is a very important time for the new semesters for the. St- schools. So the people are trying to do more things to do with education and they are planning for the second half of this year's expanding and prepare for the the end of this year's uh, the different holidays. So I would believe that for these coming months, it will still be very promising for the uh, improve of the consumption. And uh, we know that for the rest of this year, China is uh, still in the process of recovering. I would say that the consumption is expected to have a better or stronger increase in the rest of this year. Mm. And also the August trade data shows that in Yuan's term, China's exports rose 1.2% month-on-month, while the imports rose 7.6%. So how do you see the resilience of uh, China's foreign trade? Yeah, the foreign trade, uh, the first impression I would say is still very difficult for China and for the rest of the world because we are still in a very uncertain environment. But uh, among them, I, I mean that China's uh, import and investment are one of the key or most important power to hold, uphold the trade in the world. So if you are looking at the data, you can find that uh, for the import, it, they are increasing a little more than the export of China. That means that Chinese market are playing very important role in absorbing the products produced by other countries. We know that uh, international trade are a reflection of the demand and the supply relationship. We know that China is uh, one of the biggest countries in the world. So the performance of China's domestic market is uh, one of the important issues to affect the relationship of the world. And we are seeing that the global supply chain are under-structured and that there are so many factors affecting the 
the cooperation between the countries, but I still believe that China's trade is one of the most important factors in the global trade market. Mm. And we also found that private enterprises is a main contributor to China's foreign trade. We are seeing the trade by private companies grew by 6% year on year in the first eight months. And this is accounting for more than 50% of the country's total. So how do you explain the private companies role in China's foreign trade? And what are their competitiveness, do you think? Yeah, at the beginning of this year, we have uh, made it possible for all the companies to be involved in the international trade if they want, because there's no kind of uh, permits that are needed for uh, for undertaking the international trade. So the private sector, they are very active in doing that because they saw some opportunities in the world. We have talked about so many things about the uncertainty, but I, uncertainty is also companioned with uh, higher profits. So I think that many of the Chinese enterprises are very active because they are really want to make profits, not only in China, but also in the world, in other markets. So they are really playing an important role to try to diversify the trade and also the supply chains with other countries. That is a, a kind of very important uh, factor to, to uneven uh, or trying to make the uh, stabilities uh, better and stronger. Mm -hmm. And China and ASEAN are each other's largest trading partners. So what do you think in terms of the future potential of growth when it comes to the economies of ASEAN and China? And how robust is the relationship right now? I think that the change is in the, on the way because we are seeing that China and ASEAN countries are more or performance better than the rest of the world in the past several years. I think the reason is very uh, simple that both sides are really want to cooperate with each other. So the markets reflected very actively to the behaviors or signals from the governments. We signed the RCEP and we're also providing more channels for the communications between the different parties and trying to establish a better internet connections in the infrastructure and also trying to improve the environment in this region. So I, I do believe that ASEAN countries are trying to diversify their development strengths and not only on the traditional ways, but trying to improve the green economy, digital economy and other kind of cooperation in the innovative ways with Chinese counterparts. Well, we have a massive you know, trade of goods between China and ASEAN, but are you also seeing more Chinese investment into the region? For example, in EV industry, why such a big jump of Chinese investments in the ASEAN countries? Yes, traditionally, ASEAN countries are also one of the main destinations of Chinese investment. Uh, well, we see that in recent years that investment are not only trying to enhance their abilities in the global supply chain or in the regional cooperation, in the textiles, in the uh, electronics, but also trying to discover or explore more opportunities in the green economies and the digital economies. So Chinese investors are very clever and they know that the markets in ASEAN are really friendly and we have similar culture, similar habits, so we can cooperate more in the future. So what's the external environment for China's imports and exports in the rest of the year? And how do you describe China's role in the global supply chain? Uh, I think from one data we know that China is still the the country with um, that the countries in the world have the biggest uh, trade partners. So if we are looking at that, we we see that Chinese governments are very active in exploring more or uh, negotiate more trade agreements with other countries, which is uh, definitely one of the factors that will have its more stable support to the discoverer uh, of uh, you know different kind of new areas and trying to strengthen the cooperation with different parties. So they are really uh, one of the very important factors to stabilize uh, uh, the, the, you know, the development in the uncertain world. Mm. And I also want to take a look at the longer term for China's economy, because there will always be short term economic and business fluctuation in any economy, China's economy as well. But long term, Dr. Zhou, do you see that the uh, consistent shift and focus on China pursuing higher quality development and higher quality growth with this focus is not just uh, about hitting the GDP targets, right? So how do you see China's transition to the green economy, the solar panel, batteries and, and EVs? 
Yeah, it's a real promising area, in my understanding, because China is trying not to squeeze the market share of others. So when we are trying to develop to meet the demand of Chinese uh, investors and also consumers, we are trying to explore new things like the EVs and also some other areas. So I think that uh, the imagination of uh, the government is still limited in certain areas, but the market is more active and they are trying to explore indefinitely uh, space for the cooperation, for the trade and development of the longer term. I think that China is very, uh, very active and very sure about the openness. And we welcome any investors coming here in China to cooperate with us in the global supply chain and trying to provide better solutions for uh, for different challenges in other areas in the, in the world. And that's, that is uh, very important to, uh, to just benefit everyone. That was Dr. Zhou Mi, a senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. You're listening to Road Today. Stay tuned. Vietnam and the United States have officially upgraded their ties to a comprehensive strategic partnership. The announcement came during U.S. President Joe Biden's 24-hour visit to Vietnam. He put the U.S. on the same diplomatic footing as Vietnam has with China and Russia. But questions arise about whether this enhanced relationship is primarily symbolic, given Vietnam's complex regional dynamics. So for more on this development. Let's have Yang Shiyu, a research fellow from China Institute of International Studies. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Vietnam has upgraded its relationship with the United States to a comprehensive strategic partnership, raising it to the same level as Vietnam's relations with China and Russia. Will the establishment of closer relations with the United States mark a major change in Vietnam's strategic trajectory? Well, I don't think uh, this uh, upgraded uh, comprehensive strategic partnership between the U.S. and Vietnam uh, contains a substantive or strategic meaning. I think that the symbolic meaning is more than the substantive meaning, simply because, uh, on one hand, both the U.S. and Vietnam have really uh, want to enhance their bilateral relations. However, on the other hand, uh, the two sides uh, uh, hold the different calculation, uh, different uh, position. Uh, s- simply saying, for the United States, when, whenever we talk about uh, the partnership and uh, the other side of the partnership is the leadership. Uh, in other words, I can summarize U.S. foreign policy by two phrases, say leadership and partnership. So whenever U.S. wants to enhance the partnership uh, with Vietnam, Meanwhile, that means the U.S. Uh, also wants to enhance its leadership on the so-called partner. Uh, not only the uh, Vietnam, but any partner with the United States. Uh, so uh, um, uh, when uh, Vietnam really wants to keep their independence, uh, so the, the so-called partnership with the U.S. always has limits, simply because from the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, leadership-based partnership. And uh, on the other hand, uh, and secondly, uh, the two sides have different calculations and different interests in dealing with uh, bilateral as well as multilateral regional affairs, uh, actually on China. So uh, in short, uh, different uh, calculations, different interests, and di- different uh, positions uh, uh, set the limit. Uh, and meanwhile, According to Vietnam's top leader, Communist Party General Secretary Nguyen Phu Tron, he said the specific policy for the development of Vietnam-U.S. relations is to set aside the past, overcome differences, promote common ground, and face the future. How would you elaborate on the impact of the past on their relations, and what are the difficulties that need to be overcome by the two today to find common ground? Well, I, uh, I do believe there have been uh, some common ground between U.S. and Vietnam for developing the bilateral relationship, especially in the economic areas, uh, although based on different uh, interests and different uh, calculations. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, 
um, the two sides uh, have different expectations uh, about the enhanced, uh, improved bilateral relations. For the U.S., uh, they really want to make use of Vietnam as uh, uh, leverage on, on, on U.S.-China competition. And, uh, but for the Vietnam, they don't want to uh, uh, make sense between the competition between U.S. Uh, on the China-U.S. relation. Uh, therefore, there are uh, some limits. However, for the common ground, just because the U.S. has become more and more important uh, economic partners, so Vietnam uh, pay more and more attention to the U.S.-Vietnam economic relation and vice versa. So basically, I think the yeah, economic areas of the two countries uh, really contain great potentials for the further development of the bilateral relation. Uh, but under the geopolitical issues, there are numerous uh, uh, differences uh, uh, facing the two countries. For example, how to deal with China, quite different between Washington and Hanoi. And how to deal with uh, uh, Moscow, also different, uh, big differences between the two countries. So mm-hmm. in short, differences uh, with some common shared interests uh, composed uh, the uh, uh, nowadays and the future of the bilateral relation between Vietnam and the U.S. Before Biden's visit at the press conference, uh, he made a point of saying that his visit to Vietnam was not an attempt to start a Cold War with China. Uh, this is not about containing China. How do you assess his remarks? Many media reports doubted the sincerity of his words. What's your take? Well, uh, uh, I don't, uh, I don't feel strange about uh, President Biden's remarks because uh, U.S. officials as well as uh, the president has repeated they say they have no intention to conduct the Cold War. But uh, for a long time, they have done a lot of things towards uh, uh, the, the Cold War path. For example, uh, U.S. senior official in this visit uh, clearly said. Uh, Vietnam had a lengthy relationship with Russia, and the uh, U.S. will make effort to uh, persuade uh, Vietnam uh, to uh, adjust or change their current policy towards Russia. Uh, such remarks really reflect uh, U.S. Uh, tension. Say. Thanks for shedding light on the complex dynamic of U.S.-Vietnam relations. That was Yang Xuyu, a research fellow from China Institute of International Studies. That's all the time for this edition of World Today with Mika Anna. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.